One of the things that I have uh, come to learn over decades of standing in this place is the impact and importance of Yizkor. Yizkor, over these years, I have seen to have become, and rightly so, an intensely personal moment for people to gather in this sacred space to remember their own losses, to recall and remember, in modern parlance, we would say, a safe space. For people to know that this building is a container, not only of memories of things that have happened to us, but of equal importance, of the things that we feel and the things that we carry on a day-by-day -day basis, that here we can safely enter into them and know that they are held in the most gentle and profound and most caring of ways. And so the Yizkor being seen as this intense little personal moment by where we create a Jewish moment around it is something that I have come to see and learn. It's also important, I think, to recognize that the origins of Yizkor could not be more different. The historical origins of Yizkor date back approximately a thousand years ago. The circumstances surrounding it gave birth to a number of persistent, beautiful, long-standing Jewish morning rituals. But my comments will be directed totally to Yizkor. As the first crusades were declared and the crusaders made their way down the Rhine Valley to take their boats that would take them to the Promised Land, to the Holy Land, to what they felt these Christian warriors did was to liberate it from the grips of Salah Hadin, Saladin, and the Muslims. As they made their way down the Rhine Valley, the Rhine Valley was also the largest Jewish community in all of Europe. As they made their way down the river, they weren't nice, attentive, careful tourists they raped and pillaged. To use the term rape and pillage might in fact be an understatement. They massacred. We often use the word that things are decimated, but as Menachem Begin pointed out once, the term decimated refers in Latin, excuse me, in Greek, no Latin, to the word deci, which is 10. Decimated in turn, it simply put, refers to that losses were one in 10. It's important to know that the losses that were suffered by the Jewish communities of the Rhine Valley were of a tertiated notion. It was one in three. If you ever find your way to Germany, you must go to the old ancient Jewish cemetery in Kern, in Cologne. There they have tombstones that are preserved from the victims of those crusades. Yisker emerged out of the memory and the, and the shattering experience of what that was like. Think of it this way, that after those crusaders had left and people were turned back to the shuls, one every three people who were sitting in those seats were no longer alive. They were gone. And the effect and the memory of that, of that collective experience, how the Jewish community collectively absorbed this enormous blow and loss is carried with us over this near thousand years to this very moment that we often use as a way of communicating and expressing the deep personal losses that we have each felt. But the container of it is the story of the collective.
As you can imagine, I had comments written that would address the personal kind of quiet pain that we all carry into this moment. The events of this morning in Israel make that render my original thoughts completely out of sync and inappropriate. And so I have some thoughts I want to share with you, reflecting on what's taking place there and the collective feeling that I think we all carry in our hearts. Before COVID and now after COVID, uh, the synagogue, I think, in no small measure because of its location, Eglinton and the Allen, but I think also because of the prominence that we have in the city is often a location, a desired location for Christian groups to come uh, from high schools. They take a year of world religion courses and they make tours of various houses of worship, synagogues including, and so many of them find their way here. They sit down in the sanctuary and I greet and meet them and I explain a little bit about Judaism and Jews. Few things they're often surprised with, first of all, that the seats are very comfortable. They lean back, they think they're in a Cineplex studio. But I also take a careful attention to show them these beautiful stained glass windows. The stained glass windows are a representation of all the great moments in Jewish life. They catalog, catalog for us what we know so deeply from our own personal experiences. And that is the story of the Jewish people seen through the story of the various Chagay Yisrael, of the various holidays, the festivals of the Jewish people. On these windows is Shabbat, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, Purim, Sukkot, on and on and on. But what's interesting to note, and rightly so, is that included in all these beautiful windows are two very, very important and prominent ones. And that there is a window marking the calamitous tragedy of the Shoah of the Holocaust, and then another window that is marking right alongside it the historic, miraculous emergence of the State of Israel. In fact, at the very center of the window is that classic, iconic picture of Herzl after the First Zionist Congress from the balcony of his hotel in Basel, Switzerland, looking over the river. I tell them these stories to help them understand that the story of the Jewish people, that we, the Jews, although an ancient, ancient people, we come from a windswept story that dates back millennia. But that the Jewish people are not the story of, of an antiquated relic. We are not simply a people of history, but that our history, the story of the Jewish people continues. And that the founding of the State of Israel is but another chapter, another window in the ongoing story of the Jewish people. But there's something that I'm gonna to say to you that I will not say to them. When those windows were put into the sanctuary, roughly in the mid-50s, there was a naive belief that emerged with it. Herzl rightly believed that the conditions of the Jews left homeless, stateless, powerless, beholden to the courtesies and niceties of governments of which they were citizens or maybe places that they just simply lived in was a dangerous proposition. Herzl rightly believed 
that the clock was ticking, in particular on the Jews of Western Europe, which was bizarre because it was utterly counterintuitive to what people thought. In the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, everyone thought that the most dangerous place for Jews to live, the ground zero of danger for Jews, was in Russia. Alexander I dies, Alexander II comes in, reinstates the pogroms. They thought that that was the most dangerous place for Jews to live. In Moldova, in 1903, you have the eruption of the Kishinev pogroms. All the, everyone thought in the world that the most dangerous place in the world for Jews was in Eastern Europe. What was remarkable of what Herzl saw is that he said, you're wrong. It's not Eastern Europe. It's to the West. He said that the Jews in Western Europe, which everyone thought was a place of enlightenment and tolerance and culture and education, he said that's the place that's most dangerous for the Jews. And so Herzl argued that by the Jews having their own homeland, that that would resolve the problem of the Jews, or as he called it, the Jewish problem. That we would have autonomy, we would have the ability to self-direct and defend ourselves and express ourselves in the freest of ways. And then the window bearing the Shoah, the Holocaust, also carries a naivete to it, and that is Jews for decades after the Shoah believed that the Holocaust was proof positive of the dangers of anti-Semitism and that it would never come back again. That all we would have to do is point a finger at those windows, remind people of what happened to Jews, six million Jews murdered, one and a half million of them under the age of 12. To rest, to rest aside, any worries that Jews would become targets of lethality anymore. You and I both know those were naive thoughts. Neither of them are true. The fact that Jews are constituted in their own homeland, as the story famously goes, doesn't mean that we're safer, we're just free. And the Holocaust by no means put an end to the story of what anti-Semitism is. We know that it continues to exist and rear its dangerous and disgusting face. Some people may say that the pretext of what occurred in Israel this morning was the pretext of things that, about settlements, about a government, about policies, none of that's true. People, Arabs, have been invading and attacking Israel since before Israel existed. Long before there was a 67 war, long before there were settlements, long before there was Bibi Netanyahu's government or Ben Gvir or Smotrich or anyone else, they were penetrating and attacking civilians in Israel for as long as Israel has existed. The arguments that you will hear about irritating policies and aggravated actions are just shallow pretexts for things that existed long before those conditions for the pretexts even existed. Let us be clear about that. 
in Israel today from simply what I was able to gather earlier, we are reminded that we are a small, endangered people. To be a Jew is to understand not only are you the inheritor of a remarkable and beautiful legacy, but you're also the inheritor of being a target of horrible legacies. And in these moments, they come to rest together in our hearts, and that is a hard truth to reconcile ourselves with. But we are a small and endangered people. And in order for us to see our survival, it requires a great deal from each of us, not the least of which is being committed to ensure that there are those who come after us. It's why we are here in this room, because there are those who came before us who were under even the most impressive arguments as to why they should abandon it. They did not. As of this morning, we know the endangered elements of it is, is that over 800 people in Israel are in serious, serious condition. They're in mortal danger in hospitals. The hospitals themselves are sites of the kinds of scenes that haven't been seen in decades in Israel. Terrorists broke through into Sterot and other cities and towns alongside the border with Gaza in trucks with mounted machine guns and gunned down people in the middle of the street. At this very moment as I'm speaking, there are 50 men, women, and children in a kibbutz in Be'eri who are being held hostage. They are in rooms at gunpoint by Hamas terrorists, and they do not know if they will survive this day. And even more frightening, if that is not enough, even more frightening is the fear that there are other cells within Israel and that tonight they will erupt throughout the country. And in addition to all that, there is rocket fire. I'm going to go back to where I began, how Yisker is a moment both of the collective and of the personal. Best expressed in this idea seen in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, perhaps one of the most important and provocative pieces of pieces of human literature ever written. You know the words. Adonai ro'i lo'ech sar, the Lord is my shepherd, we shall not want. He has us lie upon green pastures beside still waters. Though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death, I shall fear no harm. Why is this psalm so important to you and to me and to us? Because it explains what we're feeling in this moment. The very beginning of the uh, Psalm 23 talks about God leading us on green pastures and still waters. But very quickly it moves to the personal. Though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death, what it says is, is that you can talk about death in the theoretical, in the third person. But for each of us there comes a moment when death is intensely personal. Though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death when death becomes personal, when you have lost someone you love. If you are ill, if you feel the people and things that you care about are under attack of destruction, death becomes different. You feel it differently. 
and your life is changed as a result of it. We pray in this moment that there will be peace, but more importantly, we pray for something else. The story is told about Ben Gurion. In the 50s, he was visited by a group of foreign students. And at the end of the conversation Ben Gurion has with them, one of the students asks, Mr. Prime Minister, if I could ask you, when do you think there will be peace for the state of Israel? And Ben Gurion, who was a man who was a master of, I think, seven or nine different languages, if you've been to his home in Tel Aviv, which is now a museum, you see that he read thousands upon thousands of books, decided in his answer to quote from the book of Psalms. He said, which is the concluding verses from the grace after meals, Adonai oz la'amo yitain, Adonai yabarech et amo vashalom. He said to them that God should give strength to his people and then he will bless them with peace. May God give us strength and peace. Shabbat Shalom Chag Sameach.